typically in the US, freedom is about negative freedoms. It's about freedom from outside restriction. And so platforms are hinge on that idea, um, or at least they were designed to sort of, to, to foreground that, that, you know, people need to be free to say what they want without fear of, you know, undue censorship. So it's about the individual and it's about protecting them from being encroached upon. And when you start from that premise, then, and if you build a platform based on that premise, that platform is gonna look a particular kind of way, you're gonna get Twitter. And so I think those conversations need to shift to focus instead on freedoms for. I'm Quinta Jurassic, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, June 25th, 2020. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on disinformation. For this week, Evelyn Dweck and I spoke with Whitney Phillips and Ryan Milner, authors of the new book, You Are Here, a field guide for navigating polarized speech, conspiracy theories, in our polluted media landscape. Phillips is an assistant professor in communications and rhetorical studies at Syracuse University, and Milner is an associate professor of communication at the College of Charleston. In You Are Here, they look at the uniquely disorienting aspects of the current online information environment and how that's exacerbated by aspects of internet culture that don't make sense from the outside. We discuss the challenges for journalists in understanding and reporting on that culture and how that can fuel exactly the kind of information pollution they're trying to expose. We also discussed how the internet got to this point where everything is so polluted in the first place. And, of course, what QAnon has to do with it. It's the Lawfare Podcast, June 25th. Whitney Phillips and Ryan Milner on our polluted information environment. So you have this new book out, You Are Here. I think a good way to start might be just by asking you to describe what is the problem that your book is addressing? Like, what were you concerned about that that led you to write this? Well, the answer to that question, first of all, hi, thanks for having us on. Um, the answer to that is everything. We were concerned <laughs> about everything. And that is sort of reflected in what the what the book ultimately does is instead of focusing on individual elements of what's going wrong in our political uh, landscape, it is looking at the landscape itself. So it is taking an ecological approach to essentially information disorder. How does information spread? What are the consequences of that information? Uh, How did we get here and where should we be going? So it really is taking a a broad view to survey the fact that that everything feels like it's going wrong all at once. Yeah, and I'd add to that by saying that I think that what got us here and I know what got me here is the realization over the last decade or so of studying internet culture, of studying memes, of studying jargon and vernacular and the fun people have on social media, realizing that a lot of that fun comes with some pretty steep consequences. And there's this kind of knee-jerk assumption that more information is better information and more voices is better for all of us. And we've just had to really reckon with the complications of that, uh, both individually and in our research and collectively all of us. So I think that that was a big part of this journey too. Great. So you have this incredibly rich perspective on internet culture, which we definitely want to get to. But before we go there, 
What is it about this like ecological framing that you just described, Whitney, that is unique and what does it bring to the problem? So uh, there's so much being written and discussed and, you know, podcasted about disinformation right now, but you're bringing this specific novel framework uh, in your book. So w- what is that framework and, and how does it help us attack the problem? I mean, the framework is focusing on the verb of mis and disinformation rather than the specific nouns of individual false stories or conspiracy theories or hoaxes or whatever it is people are looking at, that that we're really moving away from kind of an individualistic uh, approach to the problems, not just in terms of the individuals who spread and are affected by this information, but also the information itself that, that again, we're sort of zooming out to look at the broader ecological landscape and focusing on how everything is interconnected with everything else. You cannot separate out any one element of our ecosystem. I mean, you can obviously linguistically and conversationally, sometimes you can focus, have a conversation about algorithms, but that always has to be in the broader context of how algorithms interact with people, interact with news organizations, interact with politicians interact with algorithms, interact with et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so all of these things are fundamentally interconnected just as they are in the natural world. And so we use the kind of framework of the natural world to help us talk in a more almost inclusive way about what's going on um, online and the benefits to that. So again, it allows you to focus on the broader environmental consequences of a falsehood rather than just the falsehood itself or just saying that it's false, okay, it's false, but what what kind of impact does that have on whose bodies? It also allows you, the an ecological framework, it allows you to sidestep questions of intent. Often when people talk about myths and disinformation, they're really focused on the intention, whether or not some false thing was spread deliberately or unintentionally. And while that's an important question to ask. In some ways, it's also kind of moot because many times you don't know. And it also doesn't matter because whether or not someone meant to spread a falsehood on purpose, it still spreads and it still can have consequences. So an ecological framework allows you to kind of not, it's not that you don't care, but you can have still big, deep conversations without really needing to know why something was spread, just the fact that it spread and that it had a particular impact. And those impacts, this is the third benefit to this framing, those impacts tend to disproportionately affect vulnerable and historically marginalized communities, that people who have occupied a non-dominant position within society, they are more likely to be poisoned where they live, work, and play. And that is true offline, in the natural environment, and that's true online as well. And so an ecological framework really helps us zero in on the bodies that are affected and the bodies that are disproportionately affected. Um, And then finally, the benefit to this is it, it allows us to reflect on the ways that all of us are polluting you know, one of the early conversations that Ryan and I had, the sort of guiding metaphors was a discussion of basically trash. We all generate trash. We all generate waste. It's just that oftentimes when people talk about environmental pollution or even online pollution, the main concern is with the people who are doing it deliberately. But we all, as I said, we all are generating refuse constantly. So how can we think about how we fit within broader in pollution flows rather than just kind of posit it as somebody else's problem, somebody else's mistake, somebody else's malignancy, I guess. Yeah, thinking about how we fit is uh, a good wrap up for all of it. 
I think that despite all the collectivity of uh, our online participation, we are kind of trained to think individualistically, to think atomistically. We are the center of our own social media and our social networks. We tend to think of problematic information in these discrete units that you can kind of fact check one false claim away and you're good. When really it's not that. Really, we are connected to each other. Information is connected in ways that is really surprising. And so we have to think beyond ourselves. We have to kind of turn our focus, turn the camera and focus on the entire environment and think about what we're contributing, not just in terms of uh, our own individual participation, but in terms of what's the best for the collective. Um, and so that shift in emphasis really was a a central focus in the book, really shifting the emphasis to think about all of us together and what we can gain and what we can lose by how we participate together. Yeah. And the other thing with that too, is that we really wanted to move away from a framework that was only concerned with false information or otherwise misleading information. One of the things we mm. focus on throughout the book is truthful information, carefully vetted information, um, information that is gleaned through a process of critical thinking, that information can still pollute in really considerable ways, as can efforts to push back against racism, for example, by calling attention to racism, that, that these impulses might be positive, somebody's intent might be the best in the world, but that doesn't mean that there aren't significant problematic, ambivalent downstream consequences. And so we really wanted to move away from any kind of model that made it seem as if falsehood is, is actually the only thing we need to be concerned about. Truth, we really were big fans of it. We like it quite a lot. Hmm. But just because something is true doesn't mean that it is therefore safe to share. And we really wanted to emphasize that throughout the book. So there's so much to dig in there, and we definitely want to go back to a lot of the points you just touched on over the course of the conversation. But to keep laying the groundwork before we dig into the details, you talk a lot in your book, and both of you just mentioned now about the role of internet culture. And you also talk about, you know, your own soul searching in terms of how you thought about internet culture in the past and how you think about it now. So what is internet culture? How would you define it? And what role does it play in the ecosystem that you're describing? Really, the term internet culture, in its broadest sense, could and should just mean kind of any culture that people produce on, on the internet. Uh, but what kind of happened about a, a decade or so ago is it came to label a really niche, niche set of participation on, on a few kind of niche sites. Uh, so it was the participation that happened on 4chan and Reddit and Tumblr, pockets of Twitter and YouTube. It was all the memes, all the jargon, all the inside jokes. It was the funny viral videos, the absurdist humor. It was a mode of participation, really, uh, that that was steeped in a few kind of kind of logics. It was real big on on irony. It was real big on detachment from emotion or empathy. Everything was fun. Everything was just a joke. Just trolling if, also. Just trolling, right? If, uh, if you took things too seriously, you needed to learn how to internet. And so it was this kind of, uh, in, in the book, we talk about it as a, as, a, as a fetishized kind of way of understanding the world where everyone else was just kind of an object of play, uh, something that you could laugh at. So that was one problem with it. Another issue with internet culture uh, in, in, in this uh, instantiation 
is that it was produced by a very kind of specific set of people, or at least specific kind of demographic uh, uh, ideals, right? So very white, very male, very geeky, very libertarian, very interested in my rights to say what I want. And if you are victimized by what I say, that's on you, freedom of speech, you know? And, and so because of those couple factors, this kind of fetishized humor and this kind of white supremacist worldview, frankly, the more ironic, playful, seemingly harmless stuff that a lot of people were joking about on 4chan and Reddit a decade ago was really a Trojan horse for pretty explicit, pretty clear white nationalism, white supremacy, hate, harassment, and and all the stuff that we're contending with in a lot of online spaces now. Yeah, and I and to add to that too, um, the people who were participating in these circles that we kind of came up in as graduate mm. students, they would, by and large, I mean I can't speak for everyone, but by and large would have regarded themselves as like liberal or at least liberal leaning and maybe libertarian, but like in the mostly free speechy kind of sense. So it wasn't that the people who are participating and helping to amplify these memes, they wouldn't have identified themselves as racist. That certainly was never my experience, but it was less about a kind of explicit and self-aware white supremacy and more about a white racial frame that normalized whiteness, that muted other perspectives, that, that was just so myopic in its privileged gaze that it could not see, didn't want to see, had no interest in trying to see the consequences for people who fell outside of that privileged we. So there was a lot of laughing together. It was, it was a really fun space, but that space normalized this fetishized, flattening, explicitly sort of white in orientation attitude to the world that was very, very easy for committed white nationalists and supremacists to weaponize. The difference was that the committed white nationalists and supremacists, they knew they were holding a weapon. And those of us who were sort of playing in this detached, ironic, everything is lulls, everything is just trolling kind of way, for many years, that was just lulls was the aspirational register. We were all just having fun. And many people would frame it somehow in a kind of confusing way that all of this somehow was a benefit to free speech, question mark, question mark. But that was how people approached it. And if there was, if you had a problem with it, you either needed to learn how to internet, like Ryan said, or, you know, you needed to stop like hating free speech and love loving censorship so much. So there were a lot of values that were sort of normalized at the time that were very easy down the road for actual bad actors to take, harness, weaponize. But then when, when that feedback loop was complete and all of the uh, white nationalists and supremacists continued replicating the same kinds of tropes, the same kinds of memes, particularly as we headed into the 2016 election, Many people who had been participating in these spaces for years, they didn't recognize it for what it was because it looked so similar to the fun, lulzy play that had been normalized for so many people for, by that point, half a decade. Yeah, so I think one of the really concrete examples you give of that kind of culture that it might be helpful to unpack a bit, um, mm -hmm. because it is sort of distinctively internet-y as opposed to other parts of the ecosystem, is uh, Poe's Law. Um, so could you maybe describe what Poe's Law is and, and how that works in this culture? Absolutely. So Poe's Law is an internet axiom that goes way back that essentially boils down to acknowledging that 
if you don't know who's posting something online, you can't know their intentions. You can't know whether they are being sincere, whether they're being satirical, whether they're being ironic, whether they're trying to stir things up, whether they're just joking, whether they have some more malicious intent behind what they're saying. The term comes from a forum on, on, on creationism, on biblical creationism, where a, a poster on that forum named Poe said that Unless there's a clear indication of satire, it is impossible to tell a an earnest uh, young Earth creationist who thinks the Earth was made in six days from somebody pretending to be one just to rile people up. And so that small little observation can apply to so many circumstances where we don't know the other people that we are talking to online. Um, and it means that parsing out intent for the kind of polluted jokey stuff that goes around is really, really difficult. And so you see a lot of image memes, a lot of jokes online that skirt the edge where it's like, oh, is that, is that racist? Is it sexist? I, maybe, maybe not. Maybe they're just joking. I can't tell. Or they're and, satirizing a sexist yeah, or a racist. Exactly. Right. And so then you get into questions uh, like what happened a few years ago with, with the group of Harvard students who had their admission offers rescinded for posting uh, racist, homophobic, uh, et cetera, et cetera, content to a Facebook page. Were they really serious in their bigotry or were they just playing at their bigotry? Pose Law says we can't know. And so what that says for us in our research is that we have to then sidestep the question of intent in a lot of ways and not look at someone's intent. Because if you don't know someone, if you don't know who's posting what, if you don't know in their heart of hearts, you don't know if they're serious or sincere or a Russian disinformation agent or what. You don't know. Uh, so you just have to go by what people are are posting and you have to get around intent, which means that that cover of I was just joking falls apart because whether or not you were just joking, I can't know that. What I can know is what you said, what you produced, what you shared. So and I and it's important, too. So Pose Law is something that we first started working on and through and with in our last book, The Ambivalent Internet, that that was really central to we were trying to engage with content that wasn't, it wasn't obviously hateful, but it also wasn't obviously innocent play either. So we really in 2015, 2016, and then the book was published in 2017, had started to, to really think about this content that is, is in between or both. I mean, that's what makes it ambivalent, that it's not just that it's hard to tell. It can be both things simultaneously for different groups for different reasons. And one of the reasons that it that it kind of pings out in that kind of way is an additional really important affordance of digital media, which is context collapse. So it's not just that you can't always tell what someone means when they post something. It's that our network structures were designed to facilitate a dizzying spread of information across and between communities and even across and between platforms. So when something starts out as one thing over here, it can, in just a few retweets or whatever, end up somewhere totally else and mean and do something very, very different. And that's why, so a polluted information frame um, within a sort of ecological approach to mis and disinformation, it, it contends with that much more easily because its interest is not in where something started and what it meant to the original sharers. It's 
okay, where has this gone? How was it allowed to get where it went? And what have been the consequences for its spread? So we started in kind of a pro, I mean, I would say for me, you know, my early work as a graduate student was deeply problematic. I was, I was mm -hmm. thinking within a white racial frame. I was highly myopic. I was super privileged and not aware of that. I would have identified as a liberal then, but I, but I was getting many, many, many things wrong, just like a lot of the people I was working with at the time. And over the process of doing this research and what has it been, Ryan, like 12 years now, yeah. about 12 years. Oh God. Yeah that we did our respective dissertation books and we both got many of the same things wrong, or at least to the dissertation itself. And then we kind of corrected course a little bit and started engaging more critically with the political consequences of the stuff we were looking at. So let's dig in then more to the question that we've, we've kind of hinted at before of how the internet culture that you've just described sort of got us to the polluted information environment we're all dealing with today, where, you know, social media platforms are a cesspool. Um, when you describe the, the weirdening of the political moment, which I think is also part of that, just like walk us through that process. Yeah. So this book grew out of the work that Ryan and I had done previously, but it also kind of emerged some of the metaphors, the ecological metaphors first emerged in a research study that I did with the data and society called the oxygen of amplification, where I was looking, I was using the metaphor of redwood root systems to talk about how pollution that enters one side of a, of the forest can filter through undetected and cause all kinds of problems on the other side of the forest before anybody knows that the trees have been poisoned. So that was kind of a, the initial entry point into thinking ecologically about these issues. And that metaphor emerged from the fact that well before 2016, basically since I started doing this research, I was working very often with journalists and talking to them about, I mean, whatever terrible thing had just <clears throat> happened on the internet. That was always my wheelhouse. <clears throat> and I would always talk to them about you know, issues of amplification. That was something that emerged out of my early troll work that trolls, subcultural trolls really wanted journalists to report on the terrible stuff they were doing that incentivized them, that gave them a real charge and made them feel great about themselves. So I would warn the reporters and say, they want you to write these stories. This is, this is exactly their goal. Just as an FYI, you might want to think about your framing. And I would get shot down or I rolled at or the journalist saying like, I agree with you, but my editor would never let me talk about that in the, in the story. So it was like that for years and years. So then Donald Trump wins the election and, and I continued speaking to reporters very regularly, but the tone was starting to change in some of those conversations that they were expressing more concern about amplifying the so-called alt-right and other kinds of white supremacist memes where there had never been really much concern before not across the board. Suddenly, across the board, I was getting more people being more worried about how to do that. Then after Charlottesville, there was a there was a, a striking sea change where where before people were starting to get a little get a little nervous after Charlottesville, reporters, the ones I was working with anyway, were experiencing sometimes acute panic about what to do. That that there was this immediate, obvious, clear example that the things that happened online had this offline consequence. And I think around that same time, or at least within that same year or two window, this is when you start seeing mass shooters 
uh, posting manifestos to to 4chan. You start seeing them uh, riddled with uh, memes and that kind of uh, that kind of jargon. Uh, you start seeing white nationalist groups kind of uh, using internet culture and 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 all the stuff that had been fun for a decade as part of their style guide, as part of their playbook, right? So, so around that time, as everything politically was really coming to this culmination, or at least the the newest high watermark before the next one, uh, we started seeing a real pointed inflection of internet culture within uh, all of these kind of environments. Well, and but there was a lag time, and this is where so this is where the oxygen report kind of comes back into play because. So after Charlottesville, I'm, I'm talking to all these reporters and they're horrified and they don't know what to do. And, and then because I'm nosy and I'm trained as a folklorist and I just kind of want to know, like, tell me about your feelings um, in every capacity. I would kind of I started seeing some patterns emerge and I and I realized that this could be a really fruitful place to do some research. So once I was properly doing research, I then dug into some of the early patterns I was seeing. And one of those was the fact that the reporters who grew up who were teenagers when 4chan was making its ascendancy. They were the ones who had been most likely to amplify white supremacist memes and other kinds of trolling content, thinking that it was just a joke, thinking it was just trolling, like it always had been trolling. After Charlottesville, many of those reporters then realized oh, they're Nazis. Mm -hmm. But up until that point, because they had been so familiar with the template of internet culture, the way that the, the, the way that jokes would be framed and the kinds of things that would be joked about and what lulls looked like and felt like, they did not recognize when actual white supremacists and Nazis started to use that same content. And the fact that it was so seamless really tells you a lot mm -hmm. about how implicit that white supremacist gaze already was. And so so post-2017, then you have this reckoning with many of these younger reporters who realized that their impulse to point and laugh, their impulse to go and surface a bunch of this terrible racist stuff, all of these swastikas used to support Trump, right? They wrote just an unbelievable amount of explainers and listicles and look at these worst examples and pointing and laughing on Twitter and all this stuff. And by doing that, so these were all younger reporters, at, sometimes they were at like more technology focused platforms, but in other cases they were, they were the tech beat reporter for a larger, more established um, outlet. Then once all these articles started to be written, then other reporters who often were older, but not always, but who generally were not troll trained in the same way, they saw this content, didn't know how to respond to it, didn't know how to contextualize it, and then started writing additional stories that took it all at face value totally seriously. And they were right to do that because it wasn't funny and it wasn't a joke and it wasn't just trolling. And all of those white supremacists and nationalists were using this trolling register, were using lulls, were, they were using these performative tactics that had been perfected in these very playful spaces. So the reporters who only approached white supremacy as just a joke, they got a lot of things wrong um, and amplified a lot of problematic information as a result. But reporters who did not know about trolling, they also got certain important things wrong too. And so the kind of limitations of both groups fed into each other and resulted in the proverbial airwaves being absolutely inundated with this 
trolling white supremacist alt-right type content that then was credited with shifting the Overton window on its own. But that was never true. It was given an unbelievable assist by all the people who had been amplifying it and pointing at it and laughing at it and talking about it and talking about it and talking about it for that whole period of time, all because that movement from trolling to Nazism was not recognized by the people who were initially intercepting those and reporting out those stories. Okay, so that's perfect, a lead-in. Um, let's ground everything that you just talked about in a really current example um, that takes all of the dynamics that you sort of just talked about and supercharges them and suggests that perhaps there's a risk of history repeating itself. A QAnon conspiracy theorist came first in the Georgian Republican primary um, and is set to become a member of Congress. Uh, for the not extremely on online amongst our audience, and frankly, perhaps the pretty online but bewildered like me, <laughs> what is QAnon? <laughs> well, QAnon is a culmination of a lot of different far-right conspiracy theories. We, we talk in the book, we have a whole chapter about far-right conspiracy theories, and we use the metaphor of a hurricane to really talk about how they form the kind of energy that they accrue and what they do. And I, I open my answer with that for the precise reason that QAnon was able to sort of catch fire in the way that it did, because there had been previously a series of powerful, visible, highly energetic far-right conspiracy theories that kind of set the stage for QAnon, that they all kind of came together to form essentially a kind of deep state worldview. So Pizzagate that held that Hillary Clinton was running a satanic child sex ring in the basement of a Washington, D.C. pizza store. Um, the Seth Rich conspiracy theory that said that this DNC staffer had been working with Clinton goons, essentially, and then the Clinton goons murdered him. And then that kind of fed into QAnon, which has elements of the sort of underground satanic child sex rings, also sort of DNC being these evil actors. And so, so it kind of, it drew from a lot of those energies. And it's hard to answer clearly and explicitly the question, what is QAnon? Because like so many conspiracy theories, it's a moving target. Uh, and so the idea, the genesis of that specific instantiation of, of all these kind of deep state conspiracies that Whitney was just talking about, it started on 4chan with a post from someone calling themselves Q because they supposedly had Q level security clearance. And it started with one post and then a few more posts where Q was letting people know that there was indeed a deep state and that Donald Trump was on it. And Donald Trump was working to root out the deep state of Obama holdovers within the federal government. Really quick to jump in, this is all happening at the same time that Mueller, that Bob Mueller takes over the special counsel investigation. So the deep state sort of emerges out of the Russia investigation, and then QAnon was there to kind of jump in and then build on those energies, continue. But the, the, yeah. the Mueller connection is really important here. Absolutely, because some of the earliest iterations of the QAnon conspiracy theory said that Robert Mueller was in fact working with Donald Trump and that the Mueller investigation was not of Donald Trump, but it was Trump and Mueller together uh, ferreting out these deep state holdovers. And uh, pedophiles, including yeah, and pedophiles. people like Jeffrey Epstein, because that also got folded into the story. And Satanists and... Yeah. and 
and whoever. Essentially what the these deep state conspiracy theories allow is they allow Trump supporters to keep their cake and eat it too. They can both see the federal government as this nefarious evil agent, but also have their guy in charge of that federal government and not have any cognitive dissonance about it. And so what's happened is a very pose law kind of thing with QAnon, where it began with a few posts on 4chan, it was amplified by some people on YouTube, people moving it to other forums, other people jumped in and piled on. It was unclear at the beginning how serious anyone was taking any of this. Uh, the website Know Your Meme uh, calls QAnon a live action role playing game. At least uh, initially, initially. At least initially. And then came kind of specific targeted media manipulation uh, around the conspiracy, trying to get journalists to buy into the conspiracy. As a real uh, thing and not as, as a joke. Right. Uh, so like the, uh, was it the Tampa Trump rally, mm -hmm. right? Wait, yeah, you want to? Yeah, yeah. So in 2018, this was right after. So you can't really tell any of this story without then connecting it to what was happening politically and historically at the moment, because all of these energies are feeding into why we got the QAnon that we have today. But so this Tampa rally took place on August 1st, 2018. And up until that point, there had been a concerted, coordinated effort among QAnon proponents, we don't even really say believers because it's not clear how many people actually believed it initially, but they were promoting it. So they already for months had been trying to coordinate to get journalists to report on QAnon. And so they already had been showing up to Trump rallies wearing Q shirts and passing out Q business cards, etc. <laughs> um, and so then the Tampa rally, what was special about it was that it had happened on the heels of Trump's child separation policy at the US-Mexico border. And so the reporters swarmed the rally and there would have been reporters there anyway, but this was at the time, the biggest, most grotesque, horrific story that was happening in the United States. And so then all these reporters show up, maybe to see if Trump said something worse about it or something else about it. But instead what they saw were all these people wearing Q shirts and then that became the novel story. That became what's going on under our noses. This conspiracy theory has taken over the Trump campaign. Um, and so then stories started to be written and then stories about the stories and then stories about the stories mm -hmm. about the stories. And it really grew from there. And what that did is it attracted it, who knows how many people who then- They started, started Googling, right? Started Googling. Q, QAnon, mm -hmm. all the slogans they were finding. They found themselves on forums. They found themselves on Reddit. Then elected officials started quoting slogans and sending cryptic Twitter messages. And so this thing that started as a, as a 4chan post a few years ago has totally blossomed to the point of really enveloping a lot of the, the political conversation, uh, mm -hmm. which, is, which gets us back to this kind of hurricane metaphor we use to talk about that energy. Well, and then as we were writing the book, we had just as an illustration of how this works, we realized we had a hurricane analysis example happening in our own chapter. So we were always going to write a chapter about QAnon and about far right conspiracy theories and how Pizzagate fed into Seth Rich fed into QAnon, but then and then fed into the deep state more broadly. But we had to start making accommodations as the political stories started shifting and then building on each other. So the first thing we had to do was we needed to account for Jeffrey Epstein's arrest. And then as we proceeded further down the road, then impeachment starts to bubble up. 
So now impeachment begins using these different elements of maybe not QAnon specifically, but the kind of broader deep state hurricane that had been that had formed. We then had to account how this conspiracy theory moved its way to the center of at the time we imagined it there could never be a bigger story <laughs> from that year. Um, so that was impeachment. And then, of course, we all know what started happening at the beginning of 2020, where this thing called COVID-19, we start hearing about it. And immediately, people operating under the banner of QAnon, whether they believed or didn't believe, who knows, they started, you know, propagating all kinds of conspiracy theories about Bill Gates and and, and it connected with anti-vax stuff. And it basically fed into this, this broader worldview of the deep state and people of that ilk who were inclined to believe that there's a secret cabal of evil Obama holdover Democrats that we shouldn't believe what the government is saying. So to go back to the sort of this initial question of these journalists who show up at the rally, start reporting mm. on Q, and not to say that, you know, that was the one spark that lights the fire, but it, it does contribute to the problem. So part of the what you're describing in the book is a framework for how, in some ways, that journalists should think about their role and their responsibility in contributing to this information environment. So in this framework of information pollution, how should journalists think about that? Like, is there a clear answer here? What kind of advice would you give um, if you can go back in time to the journalists who are going to attend that rally? The first thing I'd say to that is that the the advice that 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 we give, it certainly applies to journalists, but it also applies to everyone. I mean, in our media environment, everyone has an audience. Obviously, some people have audiences in the millions and hundreds of millions. Some people have audiences of 12 people. But we all have to think about the flow of information and we have to think about what we're amplifying. And so journalists bear a particular burden with that. But one point we stress in the book is that we all have our own part in the ecosystem and we all have to, to think about what we're sharing and, and how we're sharing it. So whether it's everyday people or journalists, I think a lot of the core of the advice of the book comes down to thinking about what is worth sharing and not sharing with a knee-jerk assumption that all sharing is, is good sharing. There's this built-in assumption, assumption ingrained in a lot of us in the American tradition in particular that information wants to be free, that we have to shine a light on the world, we have to put out the bad stuff, we have to put out the good stuff, we have to bring it all into the marketplace of ideas, and we have to let people sort it out. And that really is a part and parcel with the, the journalistic mission in a lot of ways. But as our information ecosystem has gotten more complicated because of digital technologies, we've had to think about that assumption that we should just share anything that we see. And we have to think about the consequences of, of amplifying uh, anything we come across and really trouble that assumption that if it exists, we have to put it out to a mass audience. And I know that's something that Whitney has worked on for a long time and can certainly add to. So there are, in addition to this, this, impulse slash assumption that shining a light on something is going to disinfect it. It's going to make it better by sending it into the market of ideas and the market of ideas, it'll sift, it'll, it'll sort it out for us. And the best and the truest information will float to the top. 
Um, in addition to those, that set of assumptions, um, there is this pervasive assumption within journalism, but also within our own modes of being. And I'm speaking specifically from a United States context, although this is, it's not that this isn't true in other parts of the world, but it's baked into the U.S. cake um, in a very special mm -hmm. way. So just want to indicate that. Um, but just this idea that neutrality is a thing and that objectivity is possible and that when we analyze something, we stand outside of that thing and we can sort of point at it and describe it, but at a distance. And that's a mistake. It's just mm -hmm. not true. And particularly in a digital environment where information flows so easily and you have things like Poe's Law and you have things like context collapse, you are never outside a story you're commenting on. And the advice that I would give those reporters in 2018 and the advice that I would give reporters now and the advice that I would give everyone is that anytime you interact with information online, you are sending it someplace else. Something happens as a result. And so the belief even if your analysis is very, very smart, and even if you're, you're, you're crossing all your T's and you're being very careful just by responding to something, it sends it off someplace else. And you don't know what will happen to it downstream. And just that awareness is an important first step. That doesn't solve the problem. There are better ways and worse ways to respond to information, particularly as it becomes more polluted. But just having that reminder in the back of your head always that I never get to stand outside of it. Just like, you know, a wildlife photographer, wildlife photographers, it's not like they ever stand outside of nature. There's nothing to stand outside of. You are always central in you're, you're ensconced. We don't, we don't get outside of anything. So just being aware of that and all of the ethical ramifications of that can at the very least slow down this impulse of, I'm standing outside, whatever I say doesn't matter, I'm a neutral observer. Um, and when you shift the way that you are engaging with pollution and you start thinking about the downstream consequences, that tends to lend itself to more reflective and more careful responses. You know, sometimes in a lot of cases, especially right now, the goal or even the potentiality for no pollution isn't there, that, that there, the pollution will be spread. It's just how can you minimize unnecessary pollution? And how can you try to call attention to other parts of the story that are actually bigger and more interesting that don't contribute to such immediately polluted outcomes? That, that those are the kinds of reflections that we all, I think, need to make. And we all would benefit from not just journalists, although you know they tend to have large platforms. And so they are particularly important to this process, but they are embedded in this along with everybody else, including all of us on this call. No pressure, everyone, but um, <laughs> <laughs> we've got to make sure that we uh, we do our bit here not to uh, amplify or, or spread information pollution. Okay, so I'm, I'm definitely on board with you with the idea that the marketplace of ideas uh, is failing and the analogy doesn't really sort of apply in the current uh, circumstance. And it's, you know, it's hard to listen to the last half an hour of, of our discussion and feel otherwise. And, you know, as a non-American myself, I'll, I'll happily agree with the subtle, what I think was a compliment you gave us, that we're <laughs> probably much more prepared to acknowledge the very real direct harm that, that speech can cause. Um, and, and, you know, in that context, I'm really happy to see things like platforms cracking down uh, a lot more harshly in the in the context of the pandemic on health misinformation um, and, and where the there's kind of this very direct 
uh, relationship between misinformation and harm. But I think the, the question comes, like, how far do you push that and where on the information chain do you perch the solution that you just sort of talked about? Like, it seems like a great recommendation to the individual to sort of stand outside the hurricane. But once we sort of start moving into different parts of the information chain and when we start talking about like the responsibility of platforms and Mm -hmm. things like that the the free speech scholar in me gets a little bit more nervous because how do we decide what is harmful information what is you know part of the hurricane what is just sort of especially in the context of the pandemic for example people just trying to work out what on earth is going on where you know facts are hard to come by how do you sort of think about that in terms of moving the sense of responsibility from the individual to other actors in the space as well? Yeah, it's such a good and difficult question. And, mm-hmm. you know, if it were if it were easy to answer it and if it were easy to say, no, this this organization uh, or this sector just needs to do X and then that would solve the problem, we would have come up with a solution already. So we certainly don't pretend that we have the easy prefab solution to any of these questions. But I do think that what needs to happen and when people, regardless of what industry they're a part of um, or what their level of responsibility is, I think that it's a shift in how you think about freedom. Mm -hmm. And especially in a U.S. context, um, especially now as we see so much discourse around freedom and masks, the freedom to not wear a mask or whatever, typically in the U.S., and again, I'm not excluding other parts of the world from this, but talking about our own our own context, freedom is about negative freedoms. It's about it's about freedom from outside restriction. And so platforms are hinge on that idea, um, or at least they were designed to sort of to mm-hmm. to foreground that that you know people need to be free to say what they want without fear of you know, undue censorship. So it's about the individual and it's about protecting them from being encroached upon. And when you start from that premise, then, and if you build a platform based on that premise, that platform is gonna look a particular kind of way. You're gonna get Twitter, right? I mean, that's, yeah. that is basically, that is, that's a Twitter generating machine is freedoms from. And so I think those conversations need to shift to focus instead on freedoms for, communitarian freedoms freedoms for the collective for members of that collective to enjoy freedoms equally and if you and if you approach questions of speech and of moderation and and whatever else you might be looking at from that lens that then shapes what kinds of policy options or moderation options are on the table but it's a total reorientation to this idea of freedom you're still talking about freedom but it's how can freedom be just And I think that that is something that is missing in these conversations Mm -hmm. Um, and that just shifting the focus, shifting that conversation um, from freedoms from to freedoms for, that doesn't solve the problem. That isn't policy in itself, but it gets us in a different headspace. We can start thinking differently about the problem so that we can start solving the problem in new ways. And I'll say that I am a, a something of a convert here too, right? I grew up very invested in that whole, I don't like what you say, but I'll defend to the death your right to say it idea, right? This kind of uh, blanket good of the freedom of of expression. I think that it is a well-meaning ideal, but the thing that I've had to reckon with is that is an ideal propagated by the winners societally, right? The reason that I got to be so comfortable with this marketplace of ideas and letting information be free is that because I historically had won out and people who looked like me and sounded like me had won out, right? Uh, White, straight, 
uh, middle-class white people had, had won out. And so for people in a position of power, it is really easy to say, well, let's just let all the ideas out there and the best ones will win because their ideas will win. It's a very power blind attitude. And in that way, it's, it's really, really naive because it assumes everybody comes to this marketplace of ideas on equal footing when really we know that is the opposite. And so I think a lot of people designing and building our platforms came from that mentality, came from that identity, came from that perspective. And that naivete was baked into the design, which is why, yeah, we have to shift where we're looking and think less about my freedom to say what I want, but more the freedom of other people to enjoy a space where they are not harmed, uh, whether that is physical threats and harassment or whether that's rhetorical violence that then leads to physical violence. It requires a shift in emphasis that acknowledges power and acknowledges the way that powerful people have used free speech to trample over people for, for centuries. Yeah. And so our critique of free speech discourses in the marketplace of ideas, it's not actually a critique of free speech. It's a critique of facile free speech. Mm -hmm. What we're advocates for is a more robust understanding of free speech that's about maximizing the most amount of speech from the most amount of people. And you cannot do that if the most abusive, um, malicious, harmful people are the ones whose views are being amplified the loudest and who get the floor. You're never going to have a diversity of expression as long as the worst actors get to set the terms of the debate. And I, I get the trepidation about leaving those decisions to for-profit multinational companies. I don't trust Facebook or even Twitter or Google or whoever to necessarily have the public's best interests at heart. Uh, and so I understand the reticence to kind of hand over that power to, to for-profit uh, corporations to self-regulate. But on the other hand, a complete lack of self-regulation self leads to a chilling effect, right? Where if you pull your hands off the wheel and you allow white nationalism, you allow hate, you allow harassment, you allow all this pollution to flourish, then you are silencing directly or indirectly all the people of good faith, all the marginalized people, all the targeted people who otherwise would be part of your platform. So your platforms become less robust. So I definitely don't think the hands-off approach is the right approach. I understand the trepidation about just leaving it to the companies themselves to regulate because we can't trust their motives other than churning out a profit. So we have to look for solutions that are outside either of those potential paths. And, and we think that, you know, an ecological approach to these problems is a way that you, at the very least, we can start identifying what some of the, what some of the issues are and how we need to start rethinking certain things that if we are trying to extract a solution from the same taproot that gave us the problem, we are not going to solve that problem. So we need to find a different growth. And that is what an ecological approach allows us to do. And again, we're, we didn't come up with a solution, but what we tried to do is to talk about the problem differently so that we can think differently about things that just we've been trying the same things over and over and they're not working and we don't have the luxury to keep doing that. Um, and so, so we hope that that uh, is the, is the contribution of the book and we hope that it 
facilitates more conversation about what moderation might look like and how what kind of policies can emerge that can facilitate a communitarian approach to speech so that, simply put, we can save democracy. So the the discussion of sort of liberal versus communitarian uh, ideas of content moderation was really interesting to me as in, in my soul, as Evelyn knows, I'm mm -hmm. a political theory nerd. Um, and one thing I wanted to dig into a little more is this the dichotomy of freedom to versus freedom from, because what that immediately made me think of is uh, Isaiah Berlin's famous essay, Two Concepts of Liberty, where he he sort of sets out freedom to uh, and freedom from. And his argument is that there are dangers in both concepts of freedom. And I think you've spelled out pretty persuasively what the, the danger and sort of only going the route of negative freedom is. But Berlin's argument is that there's also a danger in positive freedom, right? That if you take that too far, you end up in a model of communitarianism that doesn't have room for individual disagreement and that you end up with this question of, you know, who is deciding what is the best for the collective, right? And so I'm not, I'm not saying that um, necessarily what you're suggesting goes all the way down Berlin's darkest path, but I do think it raises interesting questions, um, sort of circling back to what Evelyn said of like, who decides, right? As, as you both, I think, pretty persuasively point out, liberalism as a political model has many flaws. But one of the things that it does do is it's trying to create a system of governance that doesn't have to have a single answer to this question of who decides and that is actually formulated to allow many answers to that question. And so I'm curious for your thoughts on if we do sort of follow your lead, shift toward that more communitarian model. How do we answer that question of, of who decides? To kind of riff on, on the title of this podcast, right? Like, who is the arbiter of truth and, and how do we reach that decision? The communitarian ideal answer to that question to me would be that we decide together. So it's not on the one hand a centralized uh, fascist actor and it's not on the other hand, everyone deciding their own ideals about civil liberties and going with that. But instead, it's a collective process that pulls together multiple people and multiple voices. And so if you take that to questions of content moderation, if you take that to questions of platform design, it means that you need to get more voices in the in the room. It means that you need to have more people from more backgrounds and more perspectives who's who actually have experienced uh, hate speech, who've actually experienced harassment, uh, people who are more inclined to see things from the perspective of, of the targets of pollution as opposed to thinking in, in terms of the perpetrators of pollution. And so to me, that's the ideal kind of, of balance. And it's a hard balance to reach. You don't want authoritarianism and you don't want the tyranny of the masses, but you do want a solution where everyone comes together and more perspectives and more people start making these decisions collaboratively. So I think that that is, is one way forward. I mean, another way forward is a policy solution where our elective representatives uh, working on behalf of the American people come together with best practices and centralized policies that then are followed by multiple companies. And so that way, I mean, if our republic is working, 
then you've got that same kind of mentality of multiple people coming together to find that balance between individual and collective freedoms. So I think it's something that we have to work on together and we need more people in the conversation than have been in the conversation to date. Whitney and Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great conversation. Thanks for having us so much. Yeah, yeah, it was a great talk. And thanks for writing that book with me, Ryan. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> You've been listening to the Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed, and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pache Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast in whatever app you use, and thanks for listening. <laughs>